0: At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. Cryptid Keeper Podcast, the podcast for cryptids and their keepers. That's us, and if you're listening, it means you too. I'm Alex Flanagan. And I'm Addison Peacock. And this is a show where we talk about monsters, but the real monster was the friends we made along the way. Or rather, the real friends were the monsters we met along the way, is kind of the narrative structure of how this works. I like
1: that. I like that. Yeah. I like how you stretched out monsters like you were the MC at a monster truck rally.
0: (laughs) That's actually my, my like, secret career path goal. Um, I'm really only working in radio until I can save up the money necessary to move to... Where do they keep
1: monster trucks, Alex? I don't know. Tennessee?
0: <laughs> sure, why Maybe? not? Maybe?
1: Elvis and monster trucks. That's what Tennessee does best. Does
0: Tennessee do monster truck derbies?
1: I don't know, but you're the only 10 I see. Aww. Aww. <laughs> um, Just and... kidding. Rating people by a numerical system isn't Okay. <laughs>
0: Oh, God. That's so funny. You know how you really know a joke is funny is when someone just says... When someone says, oh, that was so funny. And they don't laugh. And they don't laugh. (laughs) And the laughter behind their eyes just, like, dies a little bit. Those are all really good cues for how you can tell when your joke has landed. My mom
1: actually does this thing. The way that my mom responds to about 9 out of 10 jokes that she claims she thinks are really
0: funny is that she doesn't laugh. She'll just go, that's funny. Honestly, yeah, and it, it's, like, thrown me off about your mom before because I cannot tell, like... She's not If being she's sarcastic. being sarcastic. I don't believe that she is because I don't think that she has, like, um, an ill-intentioned bone in her body. She's perfect <laughs> Although you did see her yell at me about the trash bowl. She didn't yell at you about the trash bowl. I think she was more just, like... <laughs> concerned. concerned. that you were using the trash bowl. Um, that's a whole other thing. Are I you, used a
1: bowl that's usually for trash. Um, I didn't know it was for trash, and I put grapes in it, and my mom
0: got very worried. That's she the end was of the story. distressed. Okay, that's the end of that. That story. Um, yeah, that's that's a whole thing. So what'd you bring me? I brought you a friend that um, okay. meets... Okay, this friend like resides at the intersection of very many of my interests. Oh, And I was boy. very excited because it's a cryptid that I've wanted to talk about for a bit. Um, and uh-huh. then once I started actually like researching and looking into him, I found out that like there are so many choice opportunities for me to make great jokes in this episode. Ooh. And I will remember none of them. So don't expect this to be funny. I was going to say not. Never expect this show to be funny that's and almost- then be... Delighted when it is Or if it is That's also like A surefire way For me to ensure That I like Will not say Anything humorous Is to open it up By saying There are a lot of Windows on this one And I'll be like No No I I didn't seize Any of them It's
1: anytime You try to show Anyone you've just Learned how to do And you can't do it You can't remember Even what it was gone Yeah
0: Right Yeah Uh, Yeah Yeah Hey you want to See me juggle (laughs) Too bad You never
1: will (laughs) Um, My party track Used to be uh, I would uh, Before I got my braces And fixed my overbed I could put my whole thing in my mouth. Sorry, this is a really weird little tangent, but I just need to talk about it. I used to be like really into the YouTube community. I used to make videos and have a lot of friends who also Mm -hmm. had channels. And a friend of mine used to do, if you were in the YouTube community around like 2009 into 2013, you remember something called blog TV where people did live streams where they would just like talk and people would talk in the chat box. It was, you know, kind of like a Twitch stream or whatever, but it was just like talking. It was like vloggers doing live streams. And my friend this guy who was one of my YouTube friends uh, at the time, and we're still, like, Facebook friends and stuff, we still, like, occasionally talk, but he did a live stream where he was, like, having people on blog TV, like, call. you can, like, add someone to the call, and, like, they can have the camera well as well, and he would, like, put people in to do their party tricks. Well, that's fun. And I said, "Oh, I put my fist in my mouth," and he was like, oh, "Okay." And He put me on, and I started doing it, and he just started screaming because <laughs> I just don't think he was ready for how like grotesque it was. Yeah, it's pretty wild.
0: Um, maybe don't try that
1: right now. <laughs> oh, I can't do it anymore since they fixed my overbite. I can't do it anymore. Well, actually, I
0: think it's like it's physically possible for anybody to put their fist in their mouth just not was, to get it back out. Yeah, no, it was very easy for me to do it. It's like a light bulb.
1: Yeah, but um, I just had a vivid recollection of me put, of of like the camera came up as I
0: was already doing. Doing it, and he just started screaming. Don't try this at home, kids. Don't. I do have to say, please do not. Um, and don't send us videos if you do. <laughs> don't, please, don't, please. Dear God, no, please, no, please, God. Um, okay. anyway, let's talk about cryptids, <laughs> or let's talk about a cryptid. Just unhinging particular. my jaw like a <laughs> snake. That also is a horrifying image. Um, <laughs> but not quite the one that I'm going for Sorry, today. Tell me about
1: what you've brought me. Are
0: you familiar with the Mokele Mbembe? No, I don't know what that is. Yeah, so the Mokele Mbembe is basically. A modern-day dinosaur. Okay. So okay. you can tell immediately why my brain latched onto this one. Anyway, I think I've mentioned the Mokolembembe before when we've talked about other uh-huh. specifically African cryptids. I think I've heard the name. Because the Mokolembembe lives in the Congo. And uh, let me just go ahead and give you some flavor text on this bad boy. Flavor text? Okay. Yeah. This is coming to you from genesispark.com. In the swampy jungles of Western Africa, reports persist of an elephant-sized creature with smooth brownish-gray skin, a long, flexible neck a very long tail as powerful as a crocodile's, and three clawed feet the size of frying pans. Oh, wow. Over the past three centuries, native peoples and Western explorers have told how the animals feed on the nut-like fruit of a riverbank plant and keep to the deep pools and subsurface caves of waters in this largely unexplored region. Aw. Now, I do want to just go ahead and clarify. Whenever we talk about African cryptids, we run into this, which is – and sometimes with, like – Eastern cryptids as well. But uh, the problem is that a lot of times the language used to describe them is incorrect. Like, it's unfair to say that these are unexplored regions. It's what they rude. mean to say is that they are uncolonized Yeah, I was regions. just going to say
1: a lot of these sources are often written through the lens of colonialism,
0: and that is not something that we endorse Yeah, it's like that. And that's one that we'll run into a lot with this guy, and I'll try to be like as cognizant of it as cognizant of it in the moment as I can because a lot of this is a type of thing where it's one of those situations where like there's something wild out there and we're like what a crazy place and like a bunch of expeditions have gone over to try to find this thing Um, and there's a specific intersection that it has with a particular niche school of belief that I'll talk about in a little bit that makes it interesting to look at in terms of historical phenomenon but that also leads to some language that is like less than helpful I'll try to edit it in my mind when I can yeah and then I'll try to also like make a point of calling it out when I see it but absolutely for the sake of just getting this out of the way it's Incorrect to think of these areas as unexplored or unsettled or wild or uncivilized. Like, those are all extremely horrible backwards ideas. Because what they mean is there's no Europeans there. Yeah, like, they just mean that, like, we don't have detailed maps of them ourselves personally.
1: You know, we run into this time and time again. It's that Eurocentric mentality Give like, right, well, we exactly. haven't been there, so I guess there's there must not be
0: anything. But anyway, so that's the Mokulambembe, basically. So there have been a lot of expeditions over there to try to find this thing. But basically... The description that we've come to leads people to believe that it is something resembling a sauropod. Mm-hmm. So like a brontosaurus or an apatosaurus, like that type oh, of good. dinosaur with, you know, the long neck and the smooth head. Um, it is an herbivore. So we have got a fun vegetarian cryptid for you today. Very nice. Yeah. The, all the evidence points to it being like a strictly plant-based diet. Now, it does get up to some shenanigans, and we will talk about oh, that. Oh, no. But um, but it does not eat any other living creatures. Okay,
1: I mean, who among us hasn't gotten up to shenanigans? I really do need to take it back really quick for a second and say, did you say its feet were the size of frying
0: pans? Yes, that was this particular <laughs> There's description. There's not a universal size for a frying pan. That's nothing. Well, maybe then, like, their entire life they are the size of some extant frying pan. I was going to say. When they're little, they've got little tiny frying pan feats. And they get as big as big frying pans. Yeah,
1: so that's not a helpful unit of measurement. That's the same as when teachers tell you an essay needs to be as long as a piece of string. That's nothing. That means nothing. Did and you that, have a teacher that told you that? Yeah, but he meant it to say like as long as it needs to be. That oh, was like okay. what he meant when he would say that. You would say how long does this need to be, and he would say as long oh, as a piece of string.
0: And you'd be like what? And he'd say as long as it needs to be. I was like, that's the most Mad Hatter <laughs> argument I've ever heard from a teacher. Yeah, yeah but, it's pretty weird. He was a cool. He was a cool guy. No, yeah. but I mean, like in that context. It's cool. Oh yeah. Um, and maybe similarly in this context, its feet are as big as it needs to be to fry eggs in. I was
1: going to saying, and like this particular history teacher, uh, it sounds like this thing is a raw vegan as
0: well. Yeah, which yeah. he was. All right, so that's a basic sort of introduction on the Mokule Okay. How do you spell that, by the way? It is Uh M-O-K-E-L-E, and then usually a hyphen or a space, Mm -hmm. M-B-E-M-B-E. Okay. So we got it. We got sort of like the basic overview of this bad boy, Mm -hmm. this very good boy. He's got a he's a, he's a big boy. Yeah, he's a large lad. So there are a few different factors that have sort of, you know, as usual, coalesced to make this thing what it is or its presence in folk culture and like the folklore and the mythology surrounding it to be what it has become. And so it's a combination as we usually find to cryptids that are specifically like location-based. It's a combination of like native folklore and um native like spiritual beliefs uh coalescing with perhaps, I guess, uncategorized physical presences and biological presences in the area, as well as with this sort of like mysticism of people seeing it from the outside and not knowing what to do with it, and then trying to associate it with something that we have like a reference point for. Like putting it in an archaeological context. Putting it in a box, right. And it's important that you say that because the archaeological context of this thing is so prevalent because the Bembe became popular at around the turn of the 20th century, Um, Or a little bit earlier than that, when archaeology started really coming back into the forefront, and people were on this dinosaur craze, and there was, like, this idea everywhere of, like, oh, we're starting to find these things, we're starting to figure out stuff about the world, and so people really, really Mm -hmm. latched onto this idea of there still being one, because we were dinosaur crazy. Some of us are still dinosaur crazy, but like it was a big deal at the time. Yeah. And in that historical context, in that historical framework, it was really, really exciting to people to think like, you know, we're just sort of starting to uncover all of these pieces of Earth's history and all of these pieces of like the biological past and the record of this planet and like starting to have to try to conceive of these things that we have no reference point for whatsoever. And so, of course, there were people who were going to be really, really excited about the thought that like maybe there is still one out there and we can find it.
1: Yeah, maybe there's a dinosaur we can find and maybe Maybe we can... Maybe there's a dinosaur. Maybe we we can pet it.
0: Maybe we can touch it with our hands. That's what I'm excited about. I want to pet it. So in Congo River Basin Folklore, um, the which and that name actually is from the Lingala dialect, and it means one who stops the flow of rivers. That's a fun fact for you.
1: Now, does that mean it... Like you mentioned it fat on like, fruit, like this fruit on like the river banks? Does mm-hmm. that mean it like literally stands in the water? I, and b- I believe that the flow? is, yeah, I
0: think that's what it is. I think it's just like this. The size of the lad. <laughs> uh, the size
1: of the lad and uh, his preferred uh, stomping grounds.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it is literally a, like, this thing is so large that it stops the flow of the rivers when it is in it. That makes I sense. I don't think it's some sort of, like, supernatural. Oh, I didn't think it was. I just was. Sort yeah, of no, it's an to important uh, clarification. Unpack though. that. Um, anyway, that's from the Lingala dialect, and okay. that's what that name means and where it comes from. And so in Congo River Basin folklore, the Mokulambimbe is a water dwelling entity, sometimes described as a living creature and sometimes as a spirit. Okay. I didn't find a lot of association with it as specifically a spirit form. I found a lot more having to do with its physical corporeal existence. You know, we'll touch on whatever we can. So again, as I said, during the early 20th century, descriptions of the entity increasingly reflected public fascination with dinosaurs, including aspects of particular dinosaur species now known among scientists to be incorrect. Like, there's been a whole bunch of buzz in recent years about how, like, Brontosaurus wasn't really a real thing. Like, it's been a mixture of other bones mm. that we found and like sort of misidentified and miscategorized. So, yeah. if Which, you were a Bront- by the way, broke my heart. It was really upsetting because I know when I was in like first and second grade, and we were doing dinosaur units, and like Land Before Time was. I huge. was just about to say Land Before Time. Yeah. Like, this is blatant Brontosaurus erasure. And then we had to deal with, like, the whole Pluto isn't a planet thing anymore. Like, I just did not trust elementary school science for a long time. Well, yeah, it will give you some
1: trust issues to learn that everything you've
0: learned is outdated and disproven. and It was upsetting. Yeah. Now I'm at a point in my life where I actually think it's very exciting to constantly be proven mm. wrong. Um, because, like, I don't know, there's something neat about knowing that, like, even people who have studied for years and become these authorities in their fields, like there's so much of the picture yeah. that we don't have. I mean, and I think that's instance, really For cool. instance, now uh, I know that the earth is flat. Right. And for example, okay, you know what? Actually, I was going to like make a joke about this, but there's an interesting point to be made about that specifically having to do with the Mbembe. Wait, what? Did you know that the Mbembe is actually very, very popular with young earth theorists? No way. Yeah. Well, actually creationists, wait, 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 wait. That creationists would make so much and young sense. earth theorists love the Mooglian Meme. Well, that makes sense
1: to me because they mm-hmm. want. To, there's the. It comes along with the theory that if dinosaurs did exist, if these are people who, because some young Earth people don't believe dinosaurs existed right, at yeah. all, that they're like you know Satan put a trick yeah, sure. in the Earth for us and everything. But it, it would make sense. It would really line up with a lot of thinking if dinosaurs did exist. But if they're still around, that would prove like they weren't around as long ago as we thought. That yeah, exactly. I totally. That totally lines up. There's actually. I am actually quite fascinated with Young Earth Theory, um, partially because it is so alien to me in and in the way that I have learned about and understood the world and history. There is actually a really great... Uh, it's a two-parter uh, I believe it's two parts uh, might just be one on uh, the podcast Ono, Ross and carrier yeah. where they go to a creationist museum and talk about a lot of intersection of dinosaurs and like young earth theory and creationism and if you want like a little bit more of a deep dive on that particular aspect I would totally recommend that. Sorry, yeah, anyway. it's a whole
0: rabbit hole and it's really interesting yeah. um, but the intersection of that with the Mogulay and Bembe is like really mm-hmm. interesting too because yeah, I mean there are people who were specifically like young earth creationists who mounted full expeditions to go try to find this thing because yeah. it would have been groundbreaking in their field. Yeah. Um, which is just like super cool. There's been a number of expeditions to try to find the Mokulean bombing. Also, it being
1: a plant-based, a vegan uh, creature, if you will, <laughs> makes a lot of sense as well because something and this is just because this is a rabbit hole I descend into quite often. I, I think that religious beliefs and, like, philosophies surrounding particularly history that are very fringe to me, like, are very, like, outside of the realm of what I have grown up learning and knowing and understanding the world. I find them very interesting and there's a lot of discussion in those circles about how the people that do believe dinosaurs existed don't believe that carnivorous dinosaurs existed. Um, there's a lot of discussion. There's a book called The Year of Living Biblically where this guy also uh, like, explored a lot of kind of fringe aspects of mm-hmm. sure. um, of biblical based religions um, and he went to a creationism museum where they talked about the theory that the uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex used its big teeth and like massive, powerful jaws to crack open coconuts—it did not eat what? meat. And the, with those little, teeny arms, how could it be an efficient predator? Like that's like a whole s- debate that a lot of these people get into. So also, it's even better that this is like a non-carnivorous. This is
0: yeah, dinosaur. I, I do love that. And I didn't yeah, know, yeah, the Mokoleni Mbembe is like the perfect mascot for this particular school of thought, which yeah. is fascinating. But yeah, I mean, I just have to like side trip real quick and say that's one of my favorite things about dinosaurs Mm -hmm. i love knowing that we shared this planet with this whole group of creatures that are so utterly inexplicable to us and i used to love this because um even like even during vacations or things when you travel a lot and like one of the only channels you can get is like the history channel or like discovery planet Mm -hmm. or whatever um i used to really get into watching these old like the dinosaur documentaries and something that i noticed even over the course of my childhood like even over those few years Uh and of course you know i was growing up at a time when technology was advancing super rapidly um that's hashtag millennial culture but like even from the time i was like six and learning about dinosaurs in first Uh grade to the time that i was like 13 or 14 and like going on road trips and like seeing these hotel room tv specials on dinosaurs like the conception of what they looked like and acted like and How they interacted and what they sounded like and their coloring and, like, their patterns, like, changed so drastically. And it's so interesting because we don't know. Yes. Like... We don't know what their skin looked like. We can only sort of make assumptions. And, like, I remember when I was really young and we would, like, have all these images of, you know, earth tone, colored dinosaurs, and et cetera. And then as that, like, bird dinosaur theory evolved, being like, well, maybe they were super colorful. Like, Like they had to have plumage or, like, yeah, tropical, you know, surroundings. Um, Or even just, like, we literally have no clue. Like, they could have been bright orange like they could have been 90s neon like yellows and pinks and blues like we don't know yeah and And all of our oh no go ahead oh no it's
1: okay i was gonna say i mean we just found that feather like the yes yes bird theory is real exactly and also i was just gonna say that something i've had to kind of reckon with over the years is pretty much anything you read about dinosaurs as um well thought out or as well researched or as grounded in the current understanding of the sciences it may be always seems to come with this
0: little footnote of just like but maybe not. <laughs> we don't know. Well, yeah. Or even the Brontosaurus thing. It's like Brontosaurus was like a main figure in the dinosaur pantheon for like yeah. forever. When we were kids, it was like there's T-Rex and there's Brontosaurus and there's Pterodactyl and there's Stegosaurus and like Triceratops. Like, and those were like the big five dinosaurs. And then to find out that that's not even a real thing. <laughs> yeah, that was like the dinosaur like – that was the dinosaur –
1: kardashians yeah bubble, it was like, like when you public like, figure like choose your fighter and like it that, was those five i, I said I, dinosaur ambassadors is what i meant to say it no 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 my no mouth. kardashian was good <laughs> thank you uh, um well you know what they were very yeah very public and they were public figures and some people weren't too fond of keeping them keeping up some with the pe- cretaceous <laughs> i'm um, gonna leave now <laughs> but yes i i there is something so fascinating about specifically having this area and obviously all areas of scientific study are evolving and changing at all times, pretty much. That's what research is all about but and experimentation and everything. But there is something specifically about how much the field of dinosaur study has changed, evolved, you might say,
0: oh, ho, ho. Uh, over the last five years even. I love it. I think it's so humbling. And there are several branches of science that make me feel this way. I mean, I space. think all sciences may maybe supposed to. But yeah, like space or like the ocean or dinosaurs, like anything that encapsulates such a vast and integral part of our existence that we really know so little about. I remember um, the first time I saw,
1: sorry to interrupt you, I remember seeing this uh, chart in a, a history, no it wasn't, it was an earth science class I took when I was in middle school mm-hmm. and they made a chart, we were talking about the history of the planet right? and it was a chart of all of the history of earth. Uh-huh. And it showed like it was like a timeline, and it was color coded. Right, and so it was like before there was anything like like other than like bacteriums and stuff, et cetera. That, that there was the dinosaurs, and then there was the period of humanity. And it was such a tiny, tiny, tiny little section of this giant line, like this giant timeline. It was. I I was about twelve years old, and I it was the first time I would really had to reckon with the fact that in terms of the grand scheme of time, if you're not a younger yeah.
0: theorist, we have been around for so little. Of yeah, it. And actually, the amount of time between us and the last extant dinosaurs, short of, of course, the Bimbe, is much, much shorter than the time between the first dinosaurs and the last dinosaurs. Yeah. Which is wild. If you ever really just want to, like, explode your brain for a second, think about stuff like that. It's yeah. amazing. It's It'll, amazing. It's yeah. so fascinating. It's so compelling. It is, like, so deeply revolutionary to try to wrap your brain around something that big. I don't know. It's one of my favorite pastimes is just to try to find something that stretches the limits of my brain beyond the capacity of what they Mm -hmm. are physically capable of doing. I find it like weirdly cathartic. Mm -hmm. There's so much stuff that we have to think about on a day-to-day basis. And there's so much that we have to be processing at any, any given point in time that we feel like we're expected to. And I think just to stop and take a moment to think about something so vast that we take for granted is like really refreshing. Absolutely. And just to understand like my place in all of this is so small, like there's no way I can begin to understand something like this. And that makes me feel a little bit better about not really understanding my place in like the immediate world around me. I'm very glad that that makes you feel better and doesn't uh, do what it often does to me, which is plunge
1: me into just like a cold pool of existential (coughs) dread. But yeah, I mean, like
0: I learned about existentialism when I was in like 10th grade (laughs) because my English teacher handed me the book, The Stranger, and asked me to do a book report and teach the class, which was like a whole thing. Like, thanks, Mr. Barrett. Um, But like, seriously, thank you, Mr. Barrett. He was amazing. But seriously, like... (laughs) I don't know. I think that there is something for me. I mean, like from the time I was 10, 11, 12, I mean, I was going through some like really real shit at home and trying to make sense of all of that when you're that small is like really, really overwhelming. And finally finding a place where like, and and even when I was little, I would do this without really knowing what it was, but just looking up at the stars in my backyard in Morgantown, West Virginia, and thinking like, I feel so small right now. And if there's stuff out there that's been going on for millions of billions of years, like anything I'm experiencing right now is super insignificant in the scope of that. And I think that means it's going to be okay. (laughs) You know? I love
1: that. I love that personal philosophy. There's
0: something really neat about being able to have a brief moment of clarity where you're capable of understanding, even for a fraction of a second Mm -hmm. before it slips out of the grasp of your brain, that like everything is so much bigger and so much huger than you. And that can be really daunting and it can be really overwhelming. It can also be really, really cool to just feel like there's going to be stuff that continues... Like, no matter what you screw up today. No, I guess <laughs> You know, that. no matter how many mistakes you make, this day is going to be at exactly 24 hours, and the sun will come up, and the Earth will keep spinning. And, and the planets
1: remain in motion. The planets remain
0: in motion. Dinosaurs will still have existed for <laughs> hundreds of thousands of years. Like, it's cool. You know, it's neat to sometimes feel like maybe not everything I do has to have a cosmic importance to it. It's exhausting feeling like the center of the world. Step back for a minute. Anyway, that was like a whole deep dive that has nothing to do with dinosaurs. It's okay. I would not consider
1: myself as emotionally evolved in that capacity as you because all I I can think about is the fact that when I was a kid and I would uh, fly a kite... Um, when it got up too high, I couldn't look at it because they had to
0: reckon with how far up the sky goes. Oh, yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. The first, like, I've been looking at the sky all my life, obviously, which is a weird thing to say. I'm like, uh, you know, a you hobbyist in the sky, sky looking. You, know, you may be familiar with it. You know, you've seen the sky. Yes, you're familiar with you know, it. You know, you know about the sky. Have you heard of it? Have you but heard no, of the sky? like, and I don't know how to explain this. And I hope that you get it because it will make me feel like much less of a person with like a, a very fragile grasp on reality. But when you look up at the sky for like most of your child, Even when you're watching clouds or whatever, you can kind of conceive of it as, like, a mural painted on this great big dome above you. Yes. The first time – and I don't know how to describe this – the first time you look at the sky and everything sort of suddenly shifts before your eyes and you become aware of, like, the depth of it going up Mm -hmm. is wild.
1: No, I actually um, used to – Uh, get incredibly anxious as a kid flying kite like Uh I couldn't fly a kite much higher than like probably like 10 feet above me and if it went up higher like one time I let the kite like the kite string just like went all the way out until I could barely see the kite up there and I cannot describe to you the dread and just like sheer just a level of like A level of ideological fear that Uh I couldn't put into words because I was like nine years old and I didn't have a conceit for why I was so terrified at how deep the sky was. Yeah. It's the only way I can conceive of it was depth. It was like watching something disappear under really, really deep
0: water. It was Yeah, it's like terrifying. You, if you've ever seen one of those like magic eye books that like people have mm-hmm. when they were a kid, like I can only describe my first experience of like realizing how big the sky was like as one of those moments. It's like I was looking at it and looking at it and it looked like a flat two dimensional thing projected up against some sort of like canvas dome a million miles above me. And then all of a sudden as I was watching it, it shifted. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, suddenly I was – it was, like, mind-blowingly weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just remember, like, laying on my back in my backyard just, like, trying to force it to shift back and forth between those two mm-hmm. perspectives for, like, an hour. I think I had a moment like that. And we'll get back to our dinosaur boy in a second. <laughs> Eventually, yeah. Sorry. Once we, we
1: we steer away from this, this very broad and intense conversation. But I had a moment as a kid uh, looking up at the stars. and I And somehow my perception shifted from seeing them as – pinpricks of light shining through some sort of, like, black curtain mm-hmm. to realizing those were, like, hundreds of thousands of actual entities out there in a big open space that I couldn't even conceive of. Most the of them already Size dead. of. Most of them are already gone. Also, the day I thought about the fact – the day I first thought about the fact that the universe doesn't have an edge – I, yeah, I lost that'll my mess mind. you up. Yeah. Anyway, we're, I don't want to talk about that anymore because I'm sure we have some people who were like, "I came here for a dinosaur. Why are you doing this to me?" Yeah. Sorry about that. Um,
0: anyway, so just to get like back from all of that, I think that like that sense of awe and wonderment is like, I know we've talked a lot about before, like wishing that we could go back in time and experience things for the first time before they became an like an influence on the canon of everything that came after them. Mm-hmm. Like you can go back and watch. Star Wars. And you can even see Star Wars for the first time, but, like, you will never know, unless you were one of these people, I apologize, but, like, if you are our age, you will never know what it was like to sit in the theater and find out that Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father. Like yeah. Or you, you won't know that moment. You'll never know what it was like to see the original
1: Blair Witch Project and walk out of that theater wondering, was that real? Yeah. Like, the first people who saw it did. Or, like experience these huge moments in popular culture and obviously i realize we're having our own version of those right now without realizing it sure and we'll look back 10 years from now and realize the things that shaped the popular culture and just the the cultural canon in general and and we'll realize those were some of our watershed moments but there is something about not being able to ever wrap your head around what that felt like like we can't live in a pre-star wars world because it's all we've ever known
0: even if you somehow manage to like live in a box for 20 years and not find out about that spoiler like so much of everything that has come after it has still influenced it in such a way in the collective cultural consciousness that like you can't really get the full impact of what that looked like and what that felt like like you'll never get away from the
1: the cultural influence of the wizard of Oz to the point that your first viewing of it will be even remotely the same
0: as the first viewing of an audience member who saw it when it was brand new right exactly and similarly to that I wish I could go back in time and figure out what it was like to find out about dinosaurs. Oh my god, Like, right? are you kidding me? To have been living your entire life on this planet and all of a sudden find out, like, these huge lizard gods inhabited this sphere mm-hmm. for, like, a million years? Before we... Before we ever had any concept of it.
1: Like, yeah. Before what? our ancestors were even...
0: A thought. Yeah, it is wild. It is wild. And so, like, I can only imagine how much that Mm -hmm. gripped the cultural imagination. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of the angle that we have to come from when we're talking about the Mokole and Bembe. So, like, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry
1: for that huge diversion. I know. This is gonna sound like a joke, but I think we take dinosaurs for granted.
0: I do too. I do too. I really do. And so I'm so excited to talk about this, and I'm so excited about the possibility of one that's still out there. Wild. Okay, so. During the early 20th century, dinosaur mania swept the world, and that's an important thing to know. So, the Membe in particular, became increasingly described alongside a number of other purported, quote-unquote, relic dinosaurs in Africa. So, like, I do think it's important to delineate that this thing may or may not be a dinosaur. But it is definitely called and considered and framed as a dinosaur because that's the reference point people had for it during the time this thing was also becoming popular. Yeah. And I... I'm not quite sure if it's a thing where, like, people in Africa around this area in the Congo were like, oh, yeah, we've known about this thing for a long time. Um, What were you saying? Dinosaurs? Like, yeah, that kind of sounds like this thing that we have. Or if it was more of a, like, this thing happened to be discovered around the same time all this other stuff was happening. And so it got kind of lumped in, yeah. Right. I can't find, like, a clear delineation on that. I kind of suspect it may be more of the former. It may be more of, like, a this sort of dialogue started happening and then somebody was like, oh, well, I heard of somebody in the Congo, who heard about a creature that sounds a lot like that. And then mm-hmm. it would be like, oh, oh my god, a dinosaur. Yeah. Like, I think that's kind of what happened, but it's hard to tell. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So over time, the entity became a point of focus in particular among cryptozoologists and young Earth creationists. Not sure how I feel about our soft sciences being lumped in together. Yeah. They're very different. They're very, very different. Uh, Which resulted in numerous expeditions led by cryptozoologists and funded by young Earth creationists uh, and groups with the aim of finding evidence that invalidates mainstream scientific consensus regarding evolution. Paleontologist Donald Prothero remarks that the quest for Mokuleyambimbe is part of the effort by creationists to overthrow the theory of evolution and teaching of science by any means possible. Wow. Which is a bold statement. That's a very bold statement.
1: I mean, especially because it's not as if that would be the only kind of vestigial prehistoric animal. Yeah. It's not like we don't have chickens, which are essentially (laughs) dinosaurs.
0: Yeah, right. Um, So I think that's a bit of a hard stance. But, like, just to give you a sense of the scope of how some people feel about this cryptid and these expeditions. Don't get me wrong.
1: Like, I'm a pretty big fan of the theory of evolution. But also, I
0: don't think... You can say that
1: the existence of the of this particular friend right. would overthrow all of science. Yeah. So let's so talk I... about
0: some of these expeditions because there have been yeah. a bunch of them. Please. Um, the first one that I found evidence of was in 1909. All right. Okay. So in ni- uh, 1909 saw the first mention of a brontosaurus-like creature in *Beasts and Men*, which was the autobiography of the famed big game hunter Carl Hagenbeck. Okay. So Carl Hagenbeck was a big game hunter who released this autobiography and made mention of this creature in it. And that's sort of when it emerged into the public eye. Did he hunt one? Uh, He claimed to have heard from two independent sources about a creature living in Rhodesia, which was described to them by natives as half elephant, half dragon. Oh, boy. Yeah, and the naturalist Joseph Menges had also told Hagenbeck about similar stories. So... Basically, I don't think Hagenbeck like personally encountered this creature, but he speculated about it in this book because he had heard several different accounts that sort of corroborated each other. He speculated, and these are his words, it can only be some kind of dinosaur, seemingly akin to the Brontosaurus.
1: I'm playing like a matching game in my head with traits of elephants and dragons, and just imagine what he looks
0: like. It's like um on the like McDonald's playgrounds when you could like spin Mm. the heads and the torsos and the feet. That's what I'm doing.
1: (laughs) That's what I'm playing right now. This is my McDonald's OC? I wish you all could see
0: the inside of my brain right now. It looks amazing. Another one of Hagenbeck's sources, Hans Schomburg, asserted that while at Lake Banguelu, he noted a lack of hippopotami. His native guides informed him of a large hippo-killing creature that lived in the lake. Um, however, as noted below, Schomburg thought that native testimony was sometimes unreliable, which, rude, like,
1: because he was an asshole, unnecessary I guess. dude.
0: But yeah, so that's an interesting thing, too, is that like the hippopotami were not around, and so they were like, why are they not there? Did it kill them and not eat them and just waste the just. <laughs> we'll just, talk yeah. about that. That's wasteful. <laughs> we'll talk about I
1: get that. that it's vegan, but that's like almost worse to just kill it, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, that's actually a
0: whole thing with the Mokalei and It's not great. Why did he do that? Uh, he didn't like people being up in his space. Why did my, my my special boy do that? Hard to tell, man. Okay. Uh, reports of dinosaur-like creatures in Africa caused a minor sensation in the mass media, and newspapers in Europe and North America carried many articles on the subject in, uh, between 1910 and 1911. Obviously, some of them were like, yeah, this is a real thing, and others were more skeptical. Some of them were very sensationalized, as you would expect. You know, like media all any time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in 1911, we have an account from a German adventurer named Lieutenant Paul Gratz. The crocodile is found only in very isolated specimens in Lake Banguelu, except in the mouths of the large rivers of the north. In the swamp lives the insanga, much feared by the natives. A degenerate saurian, which is S-A-U-R-I-A-N, like sauropod, which one might well confuse with the crocodile, were it not that its skin has no scales and its toes are armed with claws. I did not succeed in shooting a inzanga, but on the island of Mboala I came by some strips of its skin. Mm. The insanga is another one of these native creatures over there that falls into that, like, relic dinosaur category. Um, It's not quite the same thing as the Bembe, but some people think that there is crossover.
1: Yeah, it also sounds like it could be some sort of variant on a crocodile or alligator.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, But it's – I love accounts like this and when we get to talk about them and how, like, people describe certain things by their reference points Mm -hmm. and how that might fit the description of what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. So if we're thinking of a dinosaur – I kind of love the idea of describing it as, like, well, a crocodile, but not scaly. Because it's got, mm. like, that lizardness to it. Yeah. And it's like... But it's also, like, not a hippo. I don't know. It's got, like, these clawed toes and, like, smooth skin, but also does look
1: like a lizard. Like, it's really cool. I like I that. I like that overlap of traits. I'm so sorry. I've been full of tangents today, but you were talking about alligators, and um mm-hmm. and I always mix up alligators and crocodiles. I'm sorry. I know there's a difference. I've learned it before. Please don't at me. I know. I'm, I know. I know. But I did learn something fairly recently that really uh, shook me up, uh-huh. which is, you know, when um, you can see their little, their little, like, faces in the yeah. water? I always thought they were treading water Uh uh-huh they have their little feet on the bottom oh my god <laughs> they're doing that <laughs> No way. yes they have their feet on the bottom Tosies. yeah they have their little feet uh. they're like standing up at an angle oh i have seen pictures of that it's that's wild i find it i don't know why my mom is the same way i find it so creepy and i don't know why they're doing like a little meerkat thing under the water and it's a little weird <laughs> it's kind of creepy i always thought they were treading yeah, water same, honestly. that's how they managed to be so still they're not treading water their the little feet sting. are on the ground yeah. They're little lizard feet okay i'm wow okay i'm sorry for all the tangents on this episode i have had a lot of coffee i will not pretend that that's a reasonable excuse but it is an (laughs) explanation uh i don't think we
0: have to apologize for talking about our feelings on our own internet radio show (laughs) you're not wrong okay Okay. In 1913, we have another report from the German captain... And there are a lot of Germans who are, a lot like, of very Germans interested in mobile finding mobile. This, Yeah, a lot of Germans finding this I don't guy. really have an explanation for that, other than that, like, these were all in the span of three or four years of each other. So, like, one person went and came back, and, like, it makes sense the Germans would mm-hmm. be the first ones to know about it, and then mount more expeditions. But anyway. From German captain Ludwig Freier von Stein-Dulauschnitz. What a great name. Incredible, honestly. And that report is from him, but was related by a man named Willie Lay in his book, Exotic Zoology, in 1959. So the report itself is from 1913. The book in which we received it uh, was published in 1959. And okay. Willie Lay was ordered to conduct a survey of German colonies in what is now Cameroon in 1913. I didn't know there were German colonies in Cameroon, and I found that out when researching this, so I think that's also part of the influence. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so he had heard stories of an enormous reptile called Moklambembe, Mbembe, which and that name showing up in print, alleged to live in the jungles and included a description of the beast in his official report. According to Willie Lay, who wrote the book, von Stein worded his report with utmost caution, knowing it might be seen as unbelievable, which is something that we see a lot. And I know we've Ooh. talked about it before with people who have like a degree of such specificity in these cryptozoology accounts and how that's usually a reflection on like, well, I knew it wasn't going to seem believable, so I put as many details in it as I could to like yeah. ground it in a sense of reality. So take that as you will. But he thought the tales were credible. He trusted the native guides who had related the tales to him, and the stories were related to him by independent sources, yet featured many of the same details. So it was one of those things where it was corroborated from a lot of different people who didn't have reason to talk to each other about their stories, and he took that as, like, a reasonable sense of scale and truth.
1: Yeah. I mean, they do tell you when you're researching something trying to see its validity, you look at different unrelated sources and see if they corroborate. Yeah, totally. That's reasonable.
0: The animal is said to – and this is uh, von Stein's writing – the animal is said to be of a brownish-gray color with a smooth skin. Its size is approximately that of an elephant, or at least that of a hippopotamus. So okay. this guy is, like, not big for a dinosaur. No. He's kind of a small dino, that's but actually... he's kind of a pretty big anything else. Yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It is said to have a long and very flexible neck, and only one tooth, but a very long one. What? Some say it is a horn. What? No, those are
1: different and they are located in very different places. What? Yeah, I
0: don't know. I, I'm kind of envisioning it as like a rhino horn kind of deal. And maybe like that's around the mouth and you didn't see it clearly and you thought it was a tooth. Like, I really don't know. Because what I'm imagining is awful. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It just got like one underbite and it's got like one long tooth yeah. coming up from its jaw, but curving around its snout. Yeah. I don't know. That doesn't make any sense to me in terms of the tooth thing, especially because it's an herbivore. But that, why? Yeah, why would it? It's probably a horn. I don't know, dude. It's probably a horn. Probably. Okay. A few spoke about a long, muscular tail like that of an alligator, which Ooh. I think is how you would describe a dino tail if you didn't know. Yeah. Canoes coming near it are said to be doomed. Oh. The animal is said to attack the vessels at once and to kill the crews, but without eating the bodies. Oh. <laughs> the creature is said to live in the caves that have been washed out by the river in the clay of its shores at sharp bends. It is said to climb the shores even at daytime in search of food. Its diet is said to be entirely vegetable, and I imagine that a thing this big that's herbivorous would have to eat a lot. Yeah, a ton like, of food consistently throughout the day, which makes sense as to why it wouldn't necessarily be in hiding all the time. Yeah, decimating entire salad bars, like just yeah, oh
1: yeah, just go into town. But okay, serious question for you. I want to get your I want to get your take uh-huh. on this personally. Is it worse? Because obviously. Things are dying either way.
0: Is it worse to not eat it or to eat the thing you killed? I do think it's worse to not eat it, because then it's like there's not even a justification of you taking part in some sort of natural cycle, which I'm fine with. I have no problem with that. It's like, like oh, it's nature.
1: fine if it killed the canoers if it ate
0: them. I mean, like, it doesn't have a sense of people as being more important than any other animal encounters. The kidding. only people <laughs> who have that are humans. I know, I know. Like, we're the only things in nature that just assume that we're the most important part of the pyramid. You're not wrong. Which I know is like, We've already officially
1: made ourselves apex predators. I, I get know it. that
0: makes me like a concerning individual and probably puts me on a watch list somewhere because I'm like, I sound like an eco-terrorist. I'm like, well, you know, we're not more important than anything else. Like, humans are the only ones that think that we're more meaningful. And so, like, I don't care if things kill humans. That's not what I mean. I don't mean I don't care if things kill humans. I just mean that, That'd like. Be,
1: it wouldn't know better. Yeah, from the Mokule and Bembe's point of view like what does it care we're just these like fleshy meat bags yeah like that's fine it doesn't even eat the meat out of said
0: bags yeah i don't know it's just perfectly fine bagged meat laying there oh my god uh anyway i should never have used that uh you should not it was terrible you encouraged it yeah Anyway, you allowed me to be this way. Okay. We do know about its preferred type of food if you would like to hear about Please this. Please tell me about its food. What is he like? Uh, it's a kind of liana with large white blossoms with a mm. milky sap and apple-like fruits. Aw, nice. Yeah. At the Sasambo River, uh, the person who wrote this, uh, what, uh, von Stein, said that I was shown a path said to have been made by this animal in order to get at it its food. The path was fresh and there were plants of the described type nearby. But Mm -hmm. since there were too many tracks of elephants, hippos, and other large mammals, it was impossible to make out a particular spot with any amount of certainty.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. You know that nothing has ever looked better to me? You know how
1: cartoon food always looks better? Mm-hmm. There is something about the particular way in which the plants in Land Before Time look oh, so appetizing. Yeah. I want to eat those plants, those prehistoric plants that they chop down on in Land Before Time. They look so good. They make leaves look so appetizing they and really like do, honestly. just like super it's refreshing. Wild. I I but and you're describing the what it eats to me and I'm mm-hmm. like, I want that. That sounds
0: good. That's that sounds awesome. Yeah, where can I get some all right, a few more things. There are, like, a bunch more expeditions. Oh, yeah. In me- 1927, there was an expedition by a man named Alfred Aloysius Smith. Okay. Who worked for a British trading company in the late 1800s and briefly mentions in his 1927 memoir two different creatures similar to the Mokule Bembe that he talks about briefly. I'm not going to go over the whole account, but he did say that he had seen the footprint of a similar creature called the Amali. Okay. Um, He says the footprint was about the size of a good frying pan in circumference and had three claws instead of five. What is with the frying pans? I don't know. But an interesting thing about the Aloysius Smith expedition is that, uh, for one thing, he also speculates that some great creature like the Amali could be responsible for finding broken and splintered ivory in elephant graveyards. As well as he claimed to have given a chiseled out cave painting of the Amali to Ulysses S. Grant. Oh, okay. I love when, like, we're like, American presidents show up in the cryptozoology canon for some reason. Oh, my God, So, like, God, Teddy right? Roosevelt and, and U.S. Grant, they're up there now. In 1932, the cryptozoologist Ivan T. Sanderson claimed that while in Cameroon, he witnessed an enormous creature in the Mainu River. The creature, seemingly badly wounded, was only briefly visible as it lurched into the water.
1: Oh, no. Darkly
0: colored, the animal's head alone was nearly the size of a hippo. So this one is like huge. Oh my god, its head was the size of a hippo. Uh, yeah, according to Sanderson, that is bafflingly large compared yeah. to the s- descriptions of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Were the other ones babies? Is this the? I parrot? have no idea. Um, maybe they're like lobsters and they just keep growing. Although that's not really sustainable in an herbivorous diet. At some point, you do reach like mm-hmm. your your maximum size. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Sanderson uh, had only a phonetic spelling of what his native guides referred to the creature as, and he spelled it as Mku Mbembu. So, Mm. like, similar, probably. Uh, But he spelled it M apostrophe K-O-O, M apostrophe B-E-M-B-O-O. But a similar enough name for somebody who was dumb and only wanted to use phonetic spellings of the language that he was interacting with. No, you're no, you're not wrong. He was, yeah. In 1938, an explorer named Leo von Boxberger mounted an expedition in part to investigate Mokuley-Membe reports. He collected a lot of information from natives, but his notes and sketches had to be abandoned during a conflagration with local tribesmen. It sounds like he did something terrible. It sounds like he was probably the worst. But he like, did mount an yeah. expedition. It happened. Yeah. Uh, the next year, in 1939, the German Colonial Gazette published a letter by Frau Ilse von Nolde who asserted that she had heard of the animal called the, and I don't necessarily know this one, it's the Koyayamania, maybe, Mm -hmm. which means water lion. Oh, okay. Yeah, from many claimed eyewitnesses, both natives and settlers. She described the long-necked creature as living in the rivers and being about the size of a hippo, if not somewhat larger. It was known especially for attacking hippos, even coming on land to do so. Oh, shoot. Though it never ate them. Oh, well, this is the... (laughs) <laughs> b- why did they call it a
1: water lion this bears absolutely no resemblance to a lion um i kind of think maybe like sea lions also don't really look like lions i guess so Is maybe it was like a yeah that kind sea of lion comparison i, I get that it, that's vague and unhelpful they like oh man consider consider Mm-hmm. gray smooth skin uh-huh Consider that this is like a giant, long-necked seal. I love that a lot. Yeah, giant, long-necked seal. Seals can also be kind of aggressive. And um, some of them have kind of a claw-looking bits on their little flippers. Oh, they do, which I love so much. Yeah, they do. They're really good. I really am considering this might not be a lizard-type animal at all.
0: What if it has a tusk, too? Yes. Part tooth, part like horn. Walrus tusk. Walrus. Walrus kind of tusk. Yeah, and maybe that's what they mean by thinking it's a horn instead of like a tooth. Because like tusks don't look like teeth. Yeah. They look like horns. So it's... But oh, my God, sort of yes. Position. Maybe. We'll think and about that. you know that. what else? Hmm. Ivory. Yeah, you're so right. In August or September of 1966, Ivan Rydel took a picture of a large footprint with three toes northeast of Lobomo, which was notable as hippopotamuses have four toes. Okay. So it either wasn't a hippo or it was a hippo with an extra toe. Okay, awesome. There is some more here. There was a planned expedition in 1960 that was canceled by legal complications and rescheduled for 1976, had finances from a place called the Explorers Club and the explorer James H. Powell Jr., his ostensible research claim was to study crocodiles, but he also actually plans to study the mokole and Bembe. Nice. So he kind of like planned this expedition, like, I'm going to go over there to the Congo and study some crocodiles, and was like, also, I'm going to look for a dinosaur. He snuck in that leather yeah. one under the radar, yeah. On this journey, Powell located a claimed eyewitness to an animal called the Inamala, or mm-hmm. the um, Jagonini, which are the two names also that were used in the earlier report to describe the Amali, Okay. which we talked about. Natives also stated, without Powell's asking, that Nyamala ate the flowering liana, just as von Stein had been told half a century earlier. Nice. Okay, I love that consistency. When Powell showed illustrations of various animals both alive and extinct to natives, they generally suggested that the Diplodocus was the closest match. So it's a dinosaur. So it's a dinosaur. A dinosaur. Very good. Powell returned again to the same region in 1979 and got further stories. He also made a valuable contact in the American missionary Eugene Thomas, who was able to introduce Powell to several more claimed eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. They decided that the Amali or Nyamala was probably identical to the and Bembe.
1: Alright. Yeah. I consider the and Bembe to be a ten out of ten or a dinosaur.
0: <laughs> Very good. You Love don't have that. to tell me
1: that. It's okay
0: was very funny. Don't patronize me. Okay, and here's when we get a really interesting sort of divergence in the canon of stories about the Mokule Bembe. Okay, yeah. In 1976, or 1979, sorry, the Reverend Eugene Thomas from Ohio told James Powell a story that involved the purported killing of a Mokule Bembe near Lake Tele in 1959. Thomas had been a missionary who served in the Congo since 1955, so he gathered a lot of the earliest evidence and reports and claimed to have had two close encounters himself okay so this guy like sort of apparently was a reliable witness in terms of this he'd spent time over there in the area he'd talked to people who had seen it he himself had seen it and so he was very convinced of the existence of this thing okay basically he told uh, he told Powell this story about how natives of the Bengombe tribe who lived near the lake were said to have constructed a large spiked fence in a tributary of tele to keep the Bembe from interfering with their fishing so they had like purposely constructed they were, Convinced enough of the implications and the reality of this thing to take actual, like, physical lines of defense against it in their everyday lives. Right. But basically, Amokuli and Bembe managed to break through, um, though it was wounded on the spiked fence, and yeah. they actually killed it. They, like, defeated one and. Oh, wow. A- and killed this creature and had its body there. So that is kind of uncommon in cryptozoology circles and stories. We don't often hear about people who, like, actually yeah. manage to snag one of these things. Not only do we not often hear about it, that's actually often used as a way
1: to debunk it. People say it about yeah. pretty, pretty famous ones like Bigfoot or other ones like
0: that. They'll say, why haven't we found any dead ones? Right. But here's the fascinating thing. Okay. After killing this thing, they held a victory feast. And in the victory feast, they ate meat that they had gotten from the Mokole Bembe. Right. You don't want to waste it. That makes sense. You don't want to waste it. Yeah, absolutely. But what is wild is that those who participated in the feast died soon after, either from food poisoning or from natural causes. Okay. Which is probably where, like, the mythification of this creature started. Right. So up until this point, I think we were kind of thinking on a global scale of the Mokule Bembe as just, like, Something that had sort of managed to persist despite... Earlier circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's at this point when we started thinking of the Mokule and Bembe as like a magic creature. This is like this strikes me as
1: the same kind of thing that happened with um, this is like a cursed tomb kind of thing. Yeah, where people died bit. because likely they were exposed to an ancient an ancient pathogen, mm-hmm. and it seems to me like that could be a similar explanation. If this thing truly is some sort of vestigial dinosaur, it might carry some sort of parasite or disease or something that we can't we don't reckon with. Yeah, Our definitely. bodies are not. Accustomed to or prepared for. Right. Or even just, like, a protein that we can't break down. Actually, yeah, that's completely irrational. Especially, this is going to be a really wild leaf that has no scientific basis, but I was just going to say, like, especially, like, if it's uh, an old-timey herbivore of some kind. Because, like, the way it breaks down cellulose might, like, result in some sort of protein composition that we can't digest. We can't digest cellulose. Yeah. And that's Melissa's diet.
0: Loved it. Anyway, uh, I'm not going to go into detail about the rest of these expeditions. There's, like, a bunch more, and we took a lot of time with our weird stargazing Sorry. tangent, which I loved. Don't okay. apologize for art. Um, but anyway, a lot of this stuff you can find even just by Googling Mowgli and Benway or going to Wikipedia. Like, there's a ton of information. But just to run down very quickly, in 1980, McEl- Roy Mackel made uh, an expedition, which was with Powell. It was in February of 1980. They went over there and made an expedition. In 1981, Mackel went again with somebody named Jack Bryan. He wanted to see area. some more. <sighs> Bye. Again in 1981, an American engineer named Herman Regusters led his own Mokulambembe expedition after having a conflict with the Brian expedition that he had intended to join. Okay. But he didn't. So there was some infighting in the Mokulambembe. <sighs> a little bit of drama, okay. Yeah, right. 1983, the Congolese biologist Marcelin Nganga led the expedition to Lake Tele. Mm-hmm. In 1985, Rory Nugent had a sighting of something in uh, around the lake. It wasn't like a full-fledged expedition, but there was an eyewitness account. Mm-hmm. From okay, and this one is like wild. Uh, from 1985 to 1986, Operation Congo took place. It was led by four enthusiastic but naive young Englishmen, oh. led by young Earth creationist William Gibbons. Oh boy. Yeah, they hired Ungananga to take them to Lake Tille, but did not report any Mokulay Bembe sightings.
1: No, it probably heard they were coming and decided to hide. The British men, however, did start a whole bunch of drama. <laughs> of course they did. It's what they do. This was the yeah. original One Direction.
0: Oh, man. In 1986, another expedition was mounted consisting of four Dutchmen. Uh-huh. So they spent a long time over there and ended up receiving some attention in the Dutch media uh, and making sort of a big fuss about that, but not like a whole lot of mm-hmm. notable information was brought back from that. In 1988, a Japanese expedition explored the Lake Telly area in search of the Mokulambembe. In 1989, British writer Redmond O'Hanlon traveled to the region and not only failed to discover any evidence of Mokulambembe, but found out that many local people believed the creature to be a spirit rather than a physical being. In 1982, William Gibbons launched a second expedition, which he dubbed Operation Congo 2. Stop it. (laughs) Too many Congos. (laughs) No, literally, it's called Operation Congo 2. No, I believe you. I'm just angry about it. It's a lot. It's a (laughs) lot. No, no, Alex, I believe you're telling the truth. I just can't believe he did that. In January 2000, the Congo Millennium Expedition, a.k.a. Dino 2000, took no, place. No, was it called that for real? It was real? called Dino 2000. This is so embarrassing. Yeah, it gets wild the further on you go, <sighs> um, including one that I'll get to in just a minute. In November 2000, William Gibbons did some preliminary research in Cameroon for a future expedition. So that itself wasn't an expedition, but they did find uh, some eyewitness accounts, including one native who... Related an account that um, his father had killed one with a spear before, and like oh, wow. so, reestablishing sort of a physical presence in the area. In February 2001, a joint venture between Crypto Safari and the British Columbia Scientific Cryptozoology Club sent a research team. In 2001, BBC broadcast in the TV series Congo a collective interview with a group of BaYaka uh, tribe members who identified the Mokolam Bembe as the rhinoceros while looking at an illustrated manual of local wildlife. Okay. Yeah. Neither species of African rhinoceros is common in the Congo Basin, and the Bembe may, according to this account, be a mixture of mythology and folk memory from a time when rhinos were in the area. Hard to it's know. possible. I mean, it would explain the horn. Another expedition in 2006. And also in 2006, a National Geographic episode called Super Snake. Stop uh, it. Included an expedition headed by Brady Barr to Lake Telle. No unknown Super Snake. Found.
1: To- of course, someone named Brady titled his thing Super yeah, Snake. Yeah,
0: right. Um, Vice Guide to Travel. Sorry if you're to- listening and
1: your name is Brady.
0: How <laughs> to Travel okay. in 2006. In March 2008, an episode of the Sci-Fi Channel series Destination Truth. Focused on the Mokuley Bembe In March 2009, an episode of the History Channel series Monster Quest involved William Gibbons, Rob Mullen, um, and some local guides, as well as a two-man film crew that went to Cameroon in the region of the Jadot River, the Bumba River, and the Inkugogo River. Sure, why not? Yeah, a whole bunch of stuff. In 2011, an episode of Beast Hunter on the National Geographic Channel featured a search for the Mokuley Bembe. And then here's the most buckwild one. This okay. is more buckwild than Operation Congo 2. Are you ready? More than Dino 2000? In April 2012, Stephen McCullough and Sam Newton launched a Kickstarter campaign no. to fund an expedition to the Congo region to search for Mokule No! Despite raising around $29,000, no. the expedition suffered financial difficulties and is believed to have been abandoned shortly after the party reached the Congo in July 2012. Oh, what did they do? Did they just stay there? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they just quit and came back.
1: Oh, my God. Did they have too many in-flight mimosas on the way over? Where did all the money go? Literally, probably. They spent $29,000 and got nowhere. They spent $29,000 on mimosas and beef jerky. It's
0: unbelievable, honestly. It's
1: just insane. I also really need to say that Dino 2000 sounds like a movie made in, like, the 1970s about Mm -hmm. a robot dinosaur in the
0: faraway future of 2000. It's absolutely buck wild. So generally, based on all of the accounts we've gotten so far... Um, the body, just to go, like, go over again the Mogul Bembe real quick, because we spent a lot of time talking about stuff that's not strictly the Mogul and Bembe, and I want to, like, re-anchor ourselves. There's so much information on this one, though, that you can easily go find stuff. Just, like, Google it, and you'll have a really fun time falling down this rabbit hole. I hope this has been, like, an informative primer, though. Yeah, like our intro says, we encourage additional research. Generally, its body size, and this is from the Cryptids Wiki, generally its body size is somewhere between the size of a hippopotamus and an elephant. Okay. Its length has been reported to be between 5 to 10 meters. Okay. So roughly 16 to 32 feet. That's big. Yeah. But small for a dino. But still big. I love our little guy. Oh, yes. Very little. So little. Uh, the length of the neck is between 1.6 to 3.3 3 meters, so about a 5 to 10 foot long neck. Okay, good. So that neck might be two of me. <laughs> it's two Addisons. The reports out of Cameroon have reported Mokulambembe to be up to 75 feet in length. Oh, my God. So there's some regional variation on this thing. Yeah, that's
1: a little bit of variation. It might be twice the amount of the other thing we said there have also
0: been and i love this reports of a frill on the back of the head like the comb found on a male chicken or like the frills or oh, ridges found thinking, on any number like, of other dinosaurs i was
1: imagining like the uh frilled lizard have you seen it yeah, with yeah, that, yeah.
0: like big like or like, like the way they did um dilophosaurus in the jurassic park movie
1: mm-hmm. oh i was thinking also about the way they did those uh the way they did the spotted lizards in holes yeah that too mm-hmm. very similar
0: i've talked about holes a lot today <laughs> Not on not on uh on Mike. but No, yes, but I in wanted general. them to know what I've been up to. There have also been oh uh, you do you? Do you want them to know what you've <laughs> no. been up to today? No, 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 no. <laughs> there have also been reports of it having a horn on its head. It could be based on terrified locals who have found bones of prehistoric sauropods like paralytitan, Aegyptosaurus, Volcanodon, or Masoponidilus, although they only grow up to forty five feet. So maybe not. But oh, like, only 45 feet. When have feet? we historically been good at, like, reconstructing mental images based on dinosaur bones? Oh, only 45 Never. feet. They're
1: so small. So small. They're so tiny. So Little tiny. baby, tiny boys. So
0: tiny. There are a few, like, questionable photographs of this thing's footprints, if you care to look it up, but we don't have any pictures of the Mokulambembe itself. That's fair. Yeah. Sorry about that.
1: I mean, it seems like a lot of the – aside from the the recent um, more dramatically named ones, a lot of the expeditions were before, like, photography was
0: – Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's – you know, we've been investigating this thing for, like, 100 years. Yeah. Which is which pretty is cool. pretty
1: wild, actually. It's funny that this thing doesn't get more – it doesn't get more attention because this is probably one of the longest studied cryptids I, I can mean, think of. I mean, you know why. I, I mean, I do know why. it's It's yeah. Eurocentrism and all that crap. But, like – This thing should
0: be as canonized as a Bigfoot or a Loch Ness monster. Yeah, and to be fair, like, once you get into, like... Looking at things from like the cryptozoology centric perspective, Membe does show up a lot. Okay, that's fair. I um, just, it's just mean, not as like
1: folklorically popular. It's just funny to me that it's not as mainstream. Or not funny to me. It makes sense to me why, but I'm mad. I wish it were more yeah. mainstream. I think he deserves. I think he deserves recognition.
0: Yeah, although maybe he doesn't want it. He does seem to like kill anybody who tries to get <laughs> up in his space. So I mean, don't blame us for not trying. In the year of our Lord 2018, I respect that strategy. Yeah, seriously. Um, um I would just like to leave you guys with a quote. From phantomsandmonsters.com. Oh, yeah. From an article from 2016, Does the Mogul Exist? Okay. And basically the person who curates and writes Phantoms and Monsters uh, says that they recently received information from a reader. And so this is like third-hand information at best, but okay. I like this quote. So basically uh, the reader wrote in and says that they spoke to somebody who lived in the Congo and has relatives who live even deeper in the country. That relative says, during his life, he has heard of people seeing the Mokulambembe maybe three times. He's 52. Uh-huh. And he put it this way. Here in America, there are white deer, right? You mm-hmm. see them only rarely. Some men may never see one, even if he hunts or lives in the woods. Mokulambembe is like that. I love that. Yeah. It's an animal you know is out there. You might never see it, but you know it's there. Yeah, and like just because you don't happen to personally run into it doesn't discount the fact that like... It's a thing. Yeah, absolutely. So that's our boy the Mokulam Bembe. I planned to make a lot more Michael Crichton jokes in that episode just because like Congo and Jurassic Park and Prey and like everything, it seemed like ripe for the taking, but then you know things got, don't always go the way that we planned. It got a little uh got a little existential. I know, it's because I made the mistake of saying at the top of the episode I was gonna make a bunch of jokes.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. No, don't be. I steered us into some weird murky waters for a little while. Okay, but... like
0: literally when I mean, I've done that several times on this podcast. It's fair, it's fair. We've had many episodes that have just turned into like Alex talks about having feelings.
1: That's also that's totally fair. Also, um, I'm gonna fight i'm gonna fist fight my elderly neighbor for mowing his lawn about halfway through this episode and continuing to do so and it should edit out but if you hear any lawnmower sounds trickle in it's because my elderly neighbor decided this was the best time to mow his lawn and to be fair it is a saturday afternoon on a beautiful day but also but also doesn't he know we're trying to be radio stars yeah doesn't he know we're trying to make audio infotainment the very nerve anyway so (laughs) thank you so much for uh coming with us on this trip uh, thank you to the Mokulimbe, oh my gosh, I can't talk. Mokuli? and Mbembe. Mbembe. Uh, for being, being a star, being a smooth, a smooth criminal, so to speak. <laughs> oh, I love uh, that. With a very long and strong neck. Which, by the way, if it was feeling friendly, it would probably make for some very good hug experiences. Oh, yeah. It's like how I've always wanted to hug a giraffe. Aww. I've always wanted to hug a giraffe because I feel Bless. like if the giraffe loved you and wanted to be hugged, it would like kind of like dip its little head down, kind of wrap its neck around you, do a little hug back, a little huggo.
0: Aww, um, that sounds so
1: nice. Anyway, I sometimes I just uh, think about animals that pleasant. might that might, might be nice to hug. That might be
0: nice to hug. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's like a whole second podcast. Yeah, right another
1: there. animal I think about hugging a lot is if I knew a very very gentle and friendly and very chubby bear.
0: I mean, I feel like we do probably know some of those.
1: <laughs> the animal! The animal! I also really quickly want to say that I would also very much like to hug a, um, oh no, those things, um, oryx. I would like oh, to hug yeah, an oryx. They look nice. Anyway. Or a jackalope. <laughs> or a jackalope. Love to hug a jackalope. Love to hug a jackalope. <laughs> anyway. That's for another
0: podcast that we haven't made yet called Animals I'd Like to Hug. But thank you so much for coming with us on this journey today, whenever today may be for you. Uh, as always, you can find us on a number of social media platforms, including on Twitter, where we are at Crypt Keep pod, or on Facebook at The Cryptid Keeper, which is our Facebook page for business times, or in our Facebook group, which is The Cryptid Keeper Appreciation Group, which is a super fun space full of very good people. Which is for fun times. Yeah, you know, so there's fun times and there's business times, the duality of man. You can also find us on Patreon at The Cryptid Keeper, Um, and also if you are a Patreon donor of $5 per month or more, then we have a Discord server, which is a lot of fun. It's a very positive and wholesome space, and um, I hang out in there a lot. Addison is in there sometimes too, and you can just chat to us directly but it's only if you're willing to pay the big bucks (laughs) sorry about that guys you got to put a price on something oh my god (laughs) yeah the big bucks the big bucks yeah the biggest of bucks uh thank you so much to everybody who takes the time to share this podcast with friends or uh talk to people that you love about it or just spread the good word on social media talk to people that you hate about it yeah no seriously give them the crime of putting us in their ears at least once a week yep that's it make them regret it. Um, <laughs> I know we certainly will. But <laughs> Kill them with kindness. But seriously, thank you so much for all that you do. We I don't think when we started out ever imagined getting to a point where we had 60-some episodes in the backlog and new people Absolutely joining every not. week. It's, it's mind-blowing and it's really, really fun and it's very humbling in sort of a cosmic way. You know, like flying a kite. Like flying a kite. Or looking
1: at the stars or <laughs> thinking about dinosaurs and what they might be like to hug. Yeah. The uh, answer is they're too big to hug. How can you? can't even get your arms around them. How dare you. You can try, but they're
0: so big. How would you... Which Where would you even look, do your hug? Look, if I can't go out trying to pet a dog I shouldn't have, I want to go out trying to hug a dinosaur. All right. I understand. It's a noble effort. Yeah. I like, wish you all the best. I can't think of any finer way to perish <laughs> oh than trying to hug a dinosaur that shouldn't exist. I mean, the dinosaur should exist. Oh, yeah. It has every right to. I just mean, like... I want that to be on my gravestone so people have to wonder. Oh, I understand. Try to hug a dino.
1: People will be like, what? That's,
0: that's can it. you? Can, that's did, you just, did you read it? It says it's right did there. Did I stutter?
1: It says it right there. No, this is
0: text on a gravestone. You can't lie on a gravestone. <laughs> it's actually the law. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so thank you again so much for following us. And for all of your support, whether that's just telling people about the show or telling us how much you like the show, that means a lot in these trying so much. times. Wow. Uh, it's everything or whether it's being a financial supporter on patreon or just getting the word out there sharing it with people you know sharing it with people you don't know um again tagging us in things sending us information that you find fascinating giving us your listener stories at our email mm-hmm. um or taking the time to just leave feedback and let us know what, mm-hmm. what you are into or just like quietly listening and you don't ever have to speak up if you don't want
1: to just knowing that you're probably out there quietly enjoying or maybe not enjoying, but hopefully quietly enjoying is nice Yeah,
0: all of it means the world, and we hope that we can give something back to you as well. Mm -hmm.
1: So, as always, we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there.